Hello, and welcome to Sophia Told Me To, a podcast dedicated to watching and discussing every film Sophia Coppola has recommended either on her Instagram page or in interviews in the hopes that I, we, will glean a bit of her genius, taste, and inspiration. I'm your host, Alison Gorski. Welcome to the show. For this week's episode, I watched Paris, Texas. It is a 1984 film starring Harry Dean Stanton, Natasha Kinski, and Hunter Carson. It's written by Sam Shepard and L.M. Kit Carson. I don't know much about L.M. Kit Carson, but I do know that this movie has Sam Shepard written all over it and was actually a huge determining factor in me choosing it for this week. Not only is it because it's such an art classic and um, I've seen stills of it all over Tumblr and Instagram since I was a kid, but I really love Sam Shepard and was excited that I haven't seen something that he's written. It was directed by German filmmaker and photographer Wim Wenders, whose foreign eye definitely shows an affinity to the American Southwest that I think many of us, as someone from the South, tend to overlook. He's an incredibly talented filmmaker and photographer. I think he wears many hats, but those are the two I'm most aware of. I I think he's a playwright as well. I do remember reading that. But his photography I've actually seen before watching this movie. A friend of mine owns his book of photography titled Written in the West, which is a lot, it definitely reminds me of the vibe of Paris, Texas. And I remember in an interview with someone that was on set of Paris, Texas, saying that Vim Vendors was always taking pictures and brought his camera everywhere. And when not just, you know, scouting for locations, but even when they were trying to get work done, if he saw something that he had to capture, he always would. The book itself is... To me, it seems so, so Southern. I mean, you know, you get pictures of old gas stations and and wide open, empty highways and diners and uh, the like. But I was surprised to learn that he actually shot a lot of it, mostly in Southern California, which is why it's called Written in the West and not Southwest, even though I think that's definitely the vibe he was going for, which certainly is depicted in Paris, Texas. It really surprised me to see in the credits that it was produced by French and German companies, uh, production companies, because this movie is so quintessentially American. And I definitely attribute that to not only Sam Shepard's writing, but also Vim Vendor's affinity for the Southwest and his eye for capturing it. This movie is described as a road movie, which obviously literally means it's a movie that takes place on the road with its characters either running from something or running to something. It's a very introspective type of film as we see characters in their own little world undergoing a change of reality in real time. As an American who's from the South, like I said, and now lives in Southern California, I know what it's like to spend the majority of your time in a car and the forced introspection that accompanies it. I listened to an interview with the director, Vim Vendors, and he said, to quote him, he said, A road film to me is a way of life. It's an itinerary in the first place. And like all itineraries at the end, I hope I'll get somewhere. I never look at travel as a circle. For me, it's always linear and there's always something waiting at the end of the road. The story always creates one big problem that in order to be called story, it needs beginning, middle and end. And I've never been able to imagine an end to any story. I can come to 10 beginnings right now, maybe a middle, but never an end for me. End quote. I really enjoyed this part of the interview because 
I think this is something I admire about the film and a lot of movies of this era, you know, the 70s and the uh, early 80s and, and, and they were just incredibly experimental times in filmmaking. You know, the art form was still very young and it still felt like art. It felt, it was before, you know, the industry aspect of it completely took over and made Hollywood and screenwriters and directors make quite formulaic movies that were, were guaranteed money and audience. Back then, they seemed to take more chances and to give you little slices of life or movies that focus on character or like Vin Vendors, nothing, not, no real plot. I mean, of course there's plot, but it's not in the traditional, I, I guess traditional isn't even the word, but in regards to story, not in the traditional beginning, middle and end way. This film moves slowly, focuses more on character depth, like I said, and really draws you into their world by sometimes it felt like it was moving at a real time pace. The movie is over two hours long and I really didn't want it to end. So the film starts out with an older man walking through the wide open plains of Texas. He's in worn out shoes and clothes in a sort of dissociative numb state. He's got an expressionless face and a clearly tired body. We can't really tell if he's running from something or or just walking aimlessly, but he's clearly exhausted and alone. He then walks into some sort of convenience store and as he's chewing ice desperately he passes out and the man there calls a doctor who is actually a German um, which I was surprised by. He calls a doctor who is able to identify him through I think something in his wallet and calls his brother Walt who lives in California. Walt agrees to travel to Texas to retrieve uh, him which we learn his name is Travis and we learn that Walt hasn't heard from or seen Travis in over four years. Travis remains mute and continues to not say anything for the th first 30 minutes of the film until he finally says Paris. His brother thinks he's referring to Paris, Europe, or Paris, France, I mean, and doesn't exactly understand, but then he clarifies that he's talking about Paris, Texas. And Travis tells Walt that he's actually bought a plot of land there and asks Walt to please bring him there. He tells Walt he believes he was conceived in Paris, Texas, and we later learn there's more significance to, to Paris, to this family, than initially exposed or told. Walt doesn't listen to his brother, probably for the best, and brings him instead to the suburbs of Los Angeles, where he lives with his wife Anne and their eight-year-old son, Hunter. Or so we think it's their son. We learn quickly that Hunter is actually Travis's son, but that he was raised by Walt and Anne ever since Travis's disappearance. We still, at this point in the movie, don't know what happened to Travis or where Hunter's mom is or who she is, but after watching a few old home movies where we're first introduced to Hunter's mom, Jane, both the audience and Hunter are made aware that Travis is still very much in love with her and that something absolutely terrible happened. So even though we don't know why Travis went AWOL or what happened to split him and Hunter's mom, Jane, up, we know that Travis doesn't belong here, and that's for sure, that he probably never did belong in the suburbs of California. He seems very much like an outsider in his brother's home, a stranger to his own son, and a foreigner to this suburban life. So slowly, Travis and Hunter become closer, and Hunter really opens his heart and begins to warm up to the idea of Travis being his father. And this is depicted in a bunch of like very sweet, goofy moments between the two of them that they almost seem like brothers more so than father and son. 
But there's a scene where Anne reveals to Travis that Hunter's mom, Jane, has actually been in contact with her and that she sends Hunter money every month on the same day by depositing it at a bank in Texas. And Anne tells Travis where this bank is. Travis then picks up Hunter from school one day and tells him that he's going to go find his mom, Jane. Hunter, not wanting to lose his dad again, says, I'll come with you. And Travis agrees. So off they go, driving to Texas in search for Jane. So after a long drive and a few sad phone calls home, eventually they are able to track Jane down at a peep show where she works. And I really don't want to give away too much of the ending of this film because it's where everything happens. It's where most of the drama takes place. I will say that we do learn what happened to split the family up and why. And our main character, Travis, is left with the fate of his family in his hands and ultimately has to make a choice. There's a beautiful scene where he's speaking to Jane at work through a trick mirror where he can see her, but she can't see him. And that, to me, is just the highlight of the film. I mean, leave it to Sam Shepard to come up with a situation so perfectly symbolic, so accurately representative of what the characters are going through. The plastic trick mirror dividing them, the fact that he can see her so clearly, but she can't see him. The division between their love. This performative initial intimacy they have when she still thinks that he's a client, which is really what they'll never have again. You know, the opportunity to meet as two strangers and the possibility to fall intensely in love. And I really think this is why Travis cries when he sees her, not because he's, you know, pitying her, you know, upset the fact by the fact that she's stooped this level of working at a peep show occasionally prostituting herself. I think it's because he misses her, of course, but mostly it's it's because that in front of him, in front of his eyes is the flesh and blood love of his life that he's been walking towards for four years, knowing he will never be on the other side of that mirror in fantasy land with her again. While watching and seeing her, while she still didn't know who he was, I couldn't help but think, why is it so easy for us to smile for strangers, but so difficult for us to do it for the people we love most? It really breaks your heart in this scene, and his regret is palpable when looking at her. And to me, that's the biggest theme of this movie. Um, If I could summarize it in one word, it would be regret. I mean, who hasn't committed to making a choice a mistake? that had lifelong repercussions. I mean, some of us aren't even aware of them yet. We just know that certain elements of the past are painful, so we don't talk about them because we know that no amount of reflecting can ever make it right, no matter how much you love. At the end of the scene, um, when Jane realizes who he is, she has to turn off all the lights in on the other side of the trick mirror to make the trick mirror transparent or translucent so she can see Travis. And this is when it's most apparent that they're just two strangers that share nothing but a past and their child, the future. This is truly a heartbreaking and beautiful film and definitely now on my list of favorites. Harry Dean Stanton as Travis in this film is absolutely brilliant. He perfectly captures the loneliness and emptiness of his character, the inadequacies he feels as a father and as a partner to his former wife. Tasha Kinski delivers a short but very beautiful, important monologue that subtly but effectively conveys the experience of postpartum depression, which wasn't widely talked about back then. But, you know, to me, the standout performance in this film is the eight-year-old boy, 
Hunter, played by Hunter Carson. He is so natural, so likable, so innocent and trusting of his father, so desperate for love, so open-minded. There's a line when he's talking to one of his uh, schoolmates who's confused about who Travis is to Hunter. And Hunter said, he's my other dad. And the kid says, like, who has two dads? And Hunter kind of just shrugs. and He's like, I do. I guess I'm just lucky. And it almost sounded like the line was written by the boy. And I'm sure it wasn't. And the writing really is great. But the casting was genius. Um, I watched an interview with Harry Dean Stanton. And he was talking about meeting Hunter Carson in the audition process. And Hunter Carson, like, passed him a glass of water. This eight-year-old kid. And was like, pour this on your head. And so Harry Dean Stanton poured half of it on his head. And then he was like, you pour the other half. And then he poured it on his head. And to that, this kid had this, like, bond, this trust of the adult. And you really see that in the film, this trust between the two characters and the love that they have between each other. And at times, you know, it's not really a father-son dynamic, and you really can't tell who's taking care of who. Another thing that really can't be ignored in this film, and I feel I'm, I don't really have the language to talk about it, but I should, is color scheme. It, it really acts as like almost background music, like another character in the film, really informing the audience subtly, but powerfully with these visual schemes. It's most obvious in the lighting, but it's also in set design and props and costumes. The first thing I noticed was the green light that seemed to keep showing up in times of distress. However, after reading about the film and watching a few other scenes over again, it's apparent that the colors red, white, and blue are just as prominently used, if not more so. Red, white, and blue resembling the American dream and hope. We see this first with Travis's red hat. He's just walking on this big, empty highway with this beautiful blue sky, and he's got this bright red cap on his head. And he's, of course, we learn later, searching for his land, walking towards his land in Paris, Texas, a.k.a. the American dream. But then he falls ill, like we know, and he goes to this doctor's office. And when he's being treated by this doctor, he's actually bathed in this green light. And then he's picked up by his brother, who is in a blue car, and is driven to a white motel with red trim and red interior details. Again, the American dream being saved Walt and Anne's house is full of red and white and blue, as are their clothes and Hunter's clothes at first, too. It's very suburban way of life. And then as Hunter and Travis leave for Houston and have to make that distressful phone call home saying that they won't be coming back, Hunter, while making the call, is again under this beautiful green light. This happens again and again throughout the film until ultimately the final decision that Travis has to make for his family. He's again under green light. To me, green really represents the inevitability of hardships in life, of change, but also of growth. It's a beautiful visual conflict of colors throughout the film, and I'm sure much, much more nuanced than my limited understanding um, can discuss. But, you know, sometimes I really like to leave the magic of movies uh, uh, be because I like to be affected. The music is just as important, especially in the beginning of this film when the main character, Travis, chooses not to speak. Instead of words, we rely on his facial expressions and music to express his mood. The music is slow string guitar. It pairs so well with the landscape. You can 
You can sense the heat of Texas and the slow moving as a result of it. You sense Travis's loneliness, but also his acceptance of it. It's like this confident loneliness of the string guitar. I listened to an interview with a composer composer of the movie who said he literally recorded the music while watching the movie, playing directly to the images. And I just thought that was so beautiful and such a unique way of composing. Not that I'm too familiar with it, but I haven't really heard of it being done that way because it's really like you're writing along with the film as you're doing it, writing a new character. Overall, I really loved this film. I thought it was beautifully made. I thought the cinematography was absolutely gorgeous, well-acted, well-written, just fantastic all around. I was so glad to have finally watched it and that it was on Sofia Coppola's list. Of course, I should mention that it won the 1984 Cannes Film Festival's Palme d'Or, however it's pronounced, um, as well as many other honors and, you know, went on to just great critical acclaim. It's a classic, and I highly recommend you guys watch it. Next week, I will be watching the 1966 comedy drama film Daisies, directed by, forgive me for the pronunciation, Vera Shitlava. Shitlava. Um, she's Czech. I hope I'll do better with the next week and the other actors' names. It looks like a really good one, a really um, fun one. So tune in for that. Thank you guys so much for listening and watching along with me. I appreciate it. I love you all and have a great week. Stay inspired. Bye.